Join the Wall Street Journal's Tech Live Cybersecurity on June 6, 2024, in New York City, to be at the forefront of shaping the future of cybersecurity and creating a more secure digital landscape. Use the discount code PODCAST to receive $200 off your registration fee. Visit wsj.com slash techcyberpodcast to learn more. I'm Dr. Sheila Robinson. I am an author and the CEO, founder, and publisher of Diversity Woman Media. I'm Jennifer Witter, the CEO and founder of The Borland Group, a public relations agency. I'm a public speaker and an author. I'm Stacey Tisdale, on-air financial journalist, author, behavioral finance expert, and CEO of Mind Money Media Incorporated. I am Tiffany R. Warren, Senior VP, Chief Diversity Officer for Omnicom Group. I'm also the founder and president of AdColor. This is Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal, helping women empower themselves financially. Now, Veronica Dagger. Welcome to a special edition of Secrets of Wealthy Women. On this episode, we invited four African-American female executives and entrepreneurs to share their views on money and success. Stacey, when you speak to students, what are some of the myths you try to dispel about African-American women and money? All of them. I'll tell you a story. I was speaking with a group of young girls about black wealth. And I asked them, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think about blacks and money? And they were saying things like, not good with money, debtors, even some said financially illiterate, not investors. And I said to them, what if I told you that within 10 years after being freed, freed slaves amassed $60 million in the Freedmen's Bank? What if I told you that black households in the United States earning $200,000 or more are the fastest growing income group? And I pointed out some of the challenges the blacks have had to overcome to build historical wealth, like redlining, predatory lending, all sorts of things. And it was so interesting as they were hearing this, their energy changed. I think the story of black wealth in the United States is an incredible story of resilience when you look at the wealth that we've created, one, you know, over a trillion dollars in buying power. And it's when you look at some of those challenges that we've had to face, but the story's not told that way. So I think the conversations need to change them in order to shift the mindset so that we can step into that wealth. So I talk a lot about our history, a lot about particularly black women entrepreneurs, the fastest growing group of entrepreneurs in the United States. And one of the reasons I'm here and one of the reasons that I have these conversations is it's news to a lot of people. And, it, you know, we tell our history in the same way and we wonder why history repeats itself. Do you speak specifically about the impact of slavery on African-Americans' wealth today? Absolutely. I um, took my son to the Legacy Museum this summer in Montgomery, Alabama. And my son has had to live with me for all of his 13 years, so he hears a lot about this. And we're, it's an incredible museum. It's an incredible experience. And we're looking at pictures, and we saw a picture of Frederick Douglass. And kudos to him. He said, Mommy, how come more people don't talk about the fact that he was almost a millionaire? That's just so amazing to me. So the first person to really see the potential of the black economy was President Lincoln. So when he freed the slaves, he realized, okay, these people have been slaves. I have, you know, they don't know much about money, so I have to give them somewhere to put it and somewhere to learn about it. So he created the Freedmen's Bank. And within 10 years of being slaves, these people amassed $60 million in those days that would have been, you know, 
I think it was like over $7 trillion in today's economy. They built schools, they built communities, they built hospitals. And when there was the first real big economic downturn, which was when the railroads crashed, you know, that started affecting everyone's fortunes. But officers came in to manage the Freedmen's Bank, and they literally took that money to build the Treasury Annex Building, which is why when Jacob Lew was Treasury Secretary, he renamed it the Freedmen's Bank. So I think looking at what those people were able to do within 10 years after slavery, I would hope that it changes mindsets. And we're under so many socioeconomic disadvantages, but I would hope it makes people see what's possible Mm -hmm. and how if we can shift into that and tap into the resilience that we've shown, we are our own economy. You know, I'm tired of us talking about being at the bottom of the pay gap. Yes, we have all those issues, but look what we've done and look where we are. And it's something to be proud of. There's a lot of talk of microaggressions. This can happen when, say, a black black woman who is CEO was assumed to be an assistant. Have you ever experienced any of these microaggressions, Jennifer? Absolutely. And it is very jarring when it happens to a person. And I can tell you that one time I went to my client and I was waiting to see him and I was speaking to one of his associates and it came out for whatever reason that I'm first generation American, my family is Jamaican. And then she said, unprompted, you must have learned how to speak proper English by watching TV. And she felt that that was okay to say to me. And the thing with microaggressions, it's basically a verbal attack, whether it's intentional or unintentional, on a minority or marginalized group. And with us women, when we're going into a room, and all of us obviously are women of color, We are not seen as CEOs. There is an implicit bias there that we must be in a support position. And many times I've gone into meetings and if I'm with a subordinate who is white, they will look at her and think she is Jennifer and not me. So it's all these things that as a CEO, a woman of color, and that can be a double minority, that we have to go forward and be aware that when we enter a room, We're going to have to fight harder, shine brighter, jump higher, simply because the expectations are so low or that they're thinking that we're going to be there to take notes. It's never ending. Sheila, have you dealt with any microaggressions, would you say? Yes, I think one of the most surprising and offensive offensive things that happened to me as an entrepreneur, as a CEO, from someone that I actually hired to do my website. And they asked me for all my credentials, the photography, worked with my team, and I received I received a call from them. In 2016, I received a doctorate from University of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And she called me and asked me, was it a certificate? Mm-hmm. You know, and I was like surprised, you know, so just could not believe that in this day and time, as the owner and founder of this organization, that she could make that assumption even when I told her what I had. So I, too, believe that historically we as African-American women, our climb from the bottom is, is so much further. We have so much further to, um, to, to climb. And what I try to do is encourage women, women like myself that are trying to be entrepreneurs, is to even though we have all of these things against us, to try to 
wanted to make the only color in the room to matter uh, be green. And, you know, it's so easy to say um, I'm I'm a black woman and the struggle is real. I'm not blind to that. But what I try to do for myself personally is, first of all, always walk as I'm a leader. And anything after that, I happen to be a leader that's a woman, a leader that's a woman that's an African-American woman. And everything after that doesn't matter uh, when I'm trying to do business with my customers because the only thing I'm trying to um, deliver to them um, is quality service and a return on investment. And I want them to only see value and the color green when they look at me. Tiffany, have you dealt with any of this? Yeah, I mean, I think being an officer in a company where there's 75,000 employees. Revenue is around $14 billion. Um, I didn't wear it today, but usually I wear a unicorn necklace because even when I first started, I would walk down the halls and I would even think that people would get whiplash because they're like, did I see what I just saw? You know, there's not many senior VPs at my level and being a woman of color and particularly a brown woman. I want to specify that we come in all shades, but there's a particular sort of feeling that I get and I have being a browner woman in corporate America. I think what I faced, and there's there's definitely a cycle that happens when you're a woman of color in an organization. You come in, there's the honeymoon period, they're happy you're there. Um, they celebrate you. It's almost like you come in on a golden chariot and then they take off the gold, they take off the wheels, and you're essentially left on the bench. And on a daily basis, um, and, and not my present company, but in terms of people that I've spoken to, there's this repetitive injury um, that comes with microaggressions. It's really, really simple stuff, but it has the impact of greater injury because you've done everything you're supposed to do. You've graduated from the best colleges, you've received all your certifications and doctorates, and you go into a room and you're still seen as someone who can't possibly be at that level. Um, and I I say, you know, my superpower has come to be empathy. I've had to be more empathetic is a great friend of mine said, keep this question in mind when you are um, in a situation where you face bias or you face microaggressions. It's sometimes it's a really great icebreaker. And a question I often ask to many of the CEOs that I come across or senior level white male leadership and, and to some extent white female leadership is, you know, when did you lose your racial innocence? You know, for me, I can remember specifically how the air smelled when I realized that I was a black woman. And it was, I was very young. Um, usually the answer that we get back from, you know, white allies, they see other, they see someone else lose their racial innocence. You know, I saw Tommy get hit on the basketball court because he was black. But typically when white people realize or think about their racial, when they lost their racial innocence, it's when they realize their privilege. And so I think if we're going to come together and have a better solution in corporate America where women of color can be successful, be promoted um, without facing this injury or this questioning of their abilities is kind of understanding and being empathetic about your biases um, so that these women of color can thrive in these environments and give to the innovation economy like you hired them to do. How do you not let it get in your head when some people are doubting you or doing these microaggressions and and assuming that you're not who you are? For me, it was um, transcendence, and it was a very spiritual journey because I grew up in an environment of um, racial isolation mm. from day one. And it's interesting, as I've um, grown up, there's a big difference between racism and isolationism, and people don't experience the difference. I was always the only black in school. I was a figure skater. I did horse show jumping. I, you know, my parents worked hard, to, you know, to send me to private school. The, just the way, you know, the human brain works that, you know, you just do what you have to do to be accepted and be part of those things. So I kind of carried that attitude into life and into my career. And then when I started as a, a journalist, 
I remember the first TV show I was, you know, being looked at to anchor, and I'd been a producer, and I was the most qualified person for the show. And then a um, executive producer looked at me. He's like, "You're definitely the smartest person in the room. You're the best person on camera, but you just simply don't look like a business news journalist." And I remember being very defiant and saying, "You're going to have to change your definition of what a business mm. news journalist looked like." But it turned out I realized through my career, you know, working on network television, that was never a battle I was going to win. But it was one I was going to transcend because that experience came to define my work. And I wouldn't be me without going through that. And I, my response to all of it, and I've had you know just a very blessed career. I worked here, Wall Street Journal Television. I've worked at CBS. I've worked at CNN, PBS, Today Show, all the big networks. But where that sent me is into entrepreneurship starting my own media company. And I think, you know, I'm sure as our conversation evolves, that's what a lot of black women do. So it's not, I had to, you know, there's something deeper in all of us than all this stuff. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. a deeper place. Mm-hmm. And I'm grateful for every experience that I've had because that's where it's taught me how to, where to go. And that's where transformation and resilience occur and you're not defined by all that nonsense. Another stress is the pay gap. So African-American women earn about 61% of what white men earn. What's going on there, Stacey? Everything. <laughs> um, there's, you know, the pay gap. And one of the interesting things about what you just said is if you ask the average person on the street, what's the pay gap between men and women? They say 77 cents. And um, at first, as you mentioned, for black women, it's a lot lower than that. And I think, you know, it's a very exciting time for women right now. We're in a very woke phase. And I think we have the opportunity to look at what I call diversity within diversity. Not all women are the same. Not all women experience, you know, the workplace the same, the pay gap the same. And I think, you know, black women have to understand that white women experience this differently. White women have to understand Hispanic women experience this differently. And the only way that we can do that is to hear each other's voices and hear each other's stories. I love watching, um, you know, various news programs when there's panels about the pay gap and it's all white people talking about this. And, um, you know, awareness and, again, understanding, you know, this diversity within diversity and that, you know, we're all not experiencing things the same is, I hope, the next wave of feminism because I know a lot of black women and a lot of women of color have felt alienated by the feminist movement and kind of, you know, it's been co-opted into kind of a white woman's middle class issue. And um, it's everywhere. We t- when we talk about the pay gap, we think of corporate America. There's a huge wage gap in entrepreneurship. There's um, something you and I have spoken about recently called the late payment gap, where um, one of the biggest challenges that entrepreneurs face is getting paid on time and it's not spoken about very much. And women get paid 36, uh, 36% of their payments are late payments. Mm. And for black women, you know, those numbers are even worse. And, you know, what are we going to do about that? Because that financial insecurity affects every part of your life. You're not getting paid on time. You're not paying your bills on time. You're, it affects your ability to have a business. We are the fastest growing group of entrepreneurs. But if you look at the revenues mm-hmm. and the businesses that are owned by black women, they don't you know, they're mostly micro businesses. You know, getting um, paid late. My company is 15 years old, and we were always paid on time 
up until 2008 with the Great Recession. And ever since then, even though we're out of the recession, I am still getting paid late. And I had to institute tools because as one accountant、uh, said to me, you're not their bank. You're giving them an interest-free loan. And so what I do is I have them pay in advance. So in all of my contracts, I write in if I have to go into collection to To get my money back, and I win. Not only will you pay me, you are going to pay my attorney's fees because we can't be nice, nice, nice. We need our money, and when they withhold the money and we're giving them the service, it is like another insult to us. I want to talk a little bit more about equal pay for a second.、Um, what advice do you have for women who want to ask for equal pay but are afraid of being seen as too aggressive, Tiffany?、Uh, If technology levels the playing field, so does having legal representation. I was super, super young when I transitioned from、um, working for a network where I oversaw diversity for three agencies to one I, where I oversaw for seventeen hundred,、um, and I was frightened, and I had all the feelings that you feel when you level up, literally. And the one thing that equaled the playing field, at least for me, because I knew that I was at a stage where I was going to be emotional talking、um, about pay, was getting an employment lawyer. And so I had a conversation with her. I discussed the terms, what I was looking for,、um, which included, but it wasn't limited to, hey, I'm running a not-for-profit, and I still want to take this job, but I also have responsibilities over here. And she was able to sort of cut the emotion out of it and negotiate on my behalf,、um, asking for things that. I would dream about and put on vision boards. I think we don't share these tools that most people have at their disposal.、Um, we don't talk to each other, and so any young person who I know is leveling up in their career, I give them certain types of advice, particularly one in which if you if you feel that you can't ask for what you want, and this is real, I think we can give advice about how to be you know fix your posture and and be assertive in these conversations. But sometimes it does require representation. In securing that representation, this was ten years ago, I was able to ask for what I want. Um, and knowing what I wanted, not only for myself but my family, because when I walk into these situations, whether it be for employment or even looking at sponsorship for the Ad Color Awards, when I have conversations, I'm thinking about my family. I'm thinking about. My employees. I'm thinking about the young people that this endeavor is going to support, which does kind of serve as an armor for me when I'm in the conversations. But when I know I have to level up, I get the help that I need, and that's another. I don't know if it's a myth, but I do think that sometimes we take on too much and we don't ask for help. So if it's a conversation that's more complicated, if you are an officer or you're in the senior ranks, I highly recommend making sure that you have the right representation along with you, because those conversations can sometimes be hard. So、okay. I just want to add a statistic、sure. to what she said that women、yeah. should keep in. Their mind. Harvard found that seven percent of women graduating grad school negotiate their first salary, and fifty-seven percent of men do, and that ends up costing five hundred thousand dollars by the time you're sixty years old. So women need to know this going into、mm-hmm. negotiations. And just to add.、Mm-hmm. We all talk about you know women don't negotiate, and I think that also plays into a narrative as women is weak. We need to negotiate. We need to know those statistics, but also the way men and women see money is different.、Mm-hmm. Men are return oriented. They've been conditioned since the beginning of time to provide and protect, so they're looking for the number. Women are their brains literally value them by how they nurture. So it's that number is not as important to them, and that's just different. 
And that also needs to change. We have to start looking, stop looking at women's financial behavior as weak. It's different. Women perform better. Women's investments way outperform men's because they're in it for long-term, goal-oriented. They're not trading back and forth. They're not getting those trading fees. So women have to own their differences. We have the economic power. We control most of the wealth in the country. Step into it and own what we've done. Coming up, our panel discusses the racial, gender, and social biases they face. Join the Wall Street Journal in New York City on June 6, 2024, for the inaugural Tech Live Cybersecurity to network and hear from leading cybersecurity experts across a variety of sectors on how to combat cybersecurity threats, mitigate crippling attacks, and safeguard privacy on the individual and organizational level. Use the discount code PODCAST to receive $200 off your registration fee. Visit wsj.com slash techcyberpodcast to learn more. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from The Wall Street Journal. Sheila, would you elaborate on why more black women are starting their own businesses? We have to create our own um, C-suite. You know, we have to create our own careers, be bold, courageous, take our seats at the table. Uh, There, you know, is one of the four ways to reach in the C-suite. I know personally, I um, worked for an amazing organization for 14 years, uh, DuPont, and um, had a just an incredible career, uh, director in marketing communications. And once my division was sold and I went out trying to get another job um, to no avail, I'm also from the South. Not only am I a woman, woman of color, uh, I am a woman from the South, which also works against me, believe it or not. And so no one wanted to hire me in that area uh, for what I was being paid for at a corporation like DuPont. And I remember one, uh, I had this vision for a magazine 15 years ago. I, I just thought that resources such as providing idea solutions and resources to help women in their career was so valuable. And I recall speaking to one of my attorney friends and telling her that I um, did not know why I was not getting a job or given an opportunity. I had gotten received coaching. I had done everything that you should do. And she told me that um, she suggested that I explore the vision I had for starting a magazine. And to Stacy's point, my immediate reaction was, I don't have money to start a magazine. I need a job. And she said to me, you know, that's the reason why women, in particular black women, never move on their vision and their ideas and things that could could provide them success and wealth. And she said, when a man has an idea, the last thing he thinks about is where he's going to get the money from. And so she, that conviction and, you know, I just immediately started exploring this vision and and fast uh, 15 years later, um, you know, my organization is thriving. And so to answer your question, I think that some of us do it because we're passionate about it. Some of us just fall into it because I never wanted to start my own business. And, um, you know, many of us, we don't have a choice. We have to find a way to create wealth to take care of our families. Mm -hmm. And I just thank God that there are diversity programs 
programs. There are networking programs that um, everyone has been talking about because we as women have so much power when we can support, coach, mentor, provide education because there is nothing, absolutely nothing that one can achieve if they have the right education and the passion to go after it. What advice do you have for women, though, who want to have their own business but are just having trouble getting funding for it? Well, you know, there's more, a lot more out there than I uh, than was out there when I did um, started my business. Um, I started with a family loan and uh, built on my own. But there are a lot of organizations out there, um, such as the gentleman that just bought Essence. He's mm-hmm. looking for women organizations to invest in them. I know of um, a venture capital fund that's spearheaded by African-American women. I just encourage them to be um, just to do all the research they can, be diligent with that, because, you know, a lot of things we are so fearful of being rejection. Women and, and, you know, particularly myself, um, you know, once had the fear of rejection. And when I started my business 15 years ago, I realized that the only thing was stopping me was the fear of two letters, no, N-O. And you cannot be fearful. You have to be courageous. You have to um, put that business cap on and don't take these things personal and go out there and find what you need to make things happen because there are just so many more resources, um, tools, and and venture capital that is available, even though I, I know what the st- statistics say about women, but the bottom line is if you have a product that will sell, if you have something that's marketable, I don't know anybody out here that does not want to make money, and you get it into the hands of the right person, there is an opportunity for you to be successful. Some studies show that African-Americans rely more on friends and family for money advice than they they do on financial advisors. Would you agree with that, Stacey? Yes, the um, black community is very um, distrustful of the financial services industry. When, again, we talked about the Freedmen's Bank earlier. We had, um, you know, redlining, we had predatory lending, and there's just a lot of mistrust there. So I think, you know, women in general are not as comfortable with financial advisors and particularly in the black community. But I think, again, just kind of changing the narrative on this a, a bit. Nielsen Research found that blacks read financial publications 26 more than 26% more than any other group. So I think um, we have to look at the fact that it is the financial financial industry that can help us build wealth. And you're starting to see shifts in that. We're starting to see more blacks turn to the stock market, whereas we've been conditioned from day one that real estate is the way to build wealth. And so I think this is going to, you know, change generationally. But again, to me, you know, black wealth is just like a miracle when you consider the fact that for some, you know, three, just three, four generations ago, we were slaves. But you have to also look at um, always first, second generation of wealth are very cautious with their money. So again, changing the narrative, let's not just look at it as a black problem. It's, you know, it's a, you know, feeling a different sense of responsibility to preserve wealth, to maintain wealth. Blacks do, Prudential Financial found this, they do support friends and family at a much higher rate than any other ethnic group. And that's because 
you know, everyone has in their family someone who's, you know, living the socioeconomic disadvantages. But I think as our community builds wealth and as we, so many of us got burned in the housing market crash, um, you know, a quarter of a million blacks at least lost their homes. We are turning more to the financial markets and opening up more to the idea of financial services. And I think we're, you know, we'll see that as a generational shift. And education is key. Yeah, education is key. Mm-hmm. Financial literacy. Tiffany, what's one step women can take to help their career today? I'm thinking about my own experience and when I had the opportunity to level up. Um, you know, one of the things and formulas that I use when I think about um, myself in corporate America, and hopefully it'll be helpful um, to anyone who hears this, is I think about, you know, things in four steps. Um, so, you know, there, I think about the first thing, which is trauma. And I know everyone's thinking, oh my God, is this like, you know, emergency room trauma? No, it could be good or bad. Um, having a child, getting a new job, um, moving into a new house is some form of trauma. Um, the next step I take is I think about my world as it was and, and, and what it really is and just steeping myself in the present and um, the moment and understanding what do I need to go forward. Um, typically what happens after that, at least for me, there's a bit of a valley, there's a bit of a time where I get all my lessons and I learn everything. Um, and actually that's the most instructive time for me. It could be 10 minutes to five years, um, particularly when I had um, a trauma, which was actually a starter marriage. Um, I took that time to be in the valley for a little bit and work on myself as well. Um, and so, you know, taking these three steps has really been helpful. And then the final one for me is usually the breakthrough. And so when I come out of the valley, I've learned everything that I've learned. The breakthrough for me and what has happened, and this has happened every time, was um, leveling up and getting this um, this post at Omnicom Group or launching um, the Ad Color Awards with very little money and very little help um, in the sense of volunteers, but having people who are really committed to the mission. So my advice to women, particularly when you know that you're going to face trials and tribulations, because I'm a realist, is think about those four steps. And it's, re- it's really been helpful to me, and hopefully um, it'll be help- helpful to those who listen. Jennifer, what's one way black women can promote themselves effectively? I would say network, that the strongest thing that you can do for yourself is to go out there and build a network. And one of the things I say is that you should not be creating a network when you need it. You should be creating a network when you don't need it, because the strongest thing that we women can do is to support ourselves. And there are a lot of opportunities out there that don't go out into the mainstream, but you hear about it through your connections. And for myself, with my business, uh, I have gotten so much in terms of professional relationships, personal relationships, and for the Borland Group itself, business through my network. But the thing about it is, is that for women and for anybody engaged in networking, you have to understand that it's not all about you. You have to be able to give in order to eventually get back. And so when you're going out there, know what you're doing, know what you want, but go out there authentically and know that you have to, in return, to get what you're aiming at, your goal, you're going to have to give. And to consistently network with individuals that you meet 
follow up, stay in front of them, because in the long term, it is absolutely going to help you when you're at your peak and when you go down into that valley. Because we all, no matter how successful you are, there will be a valley one day and your network will be there to help you climb that mountain back up to the peak. Time now for your secrets. I'm Dr. Sheila Robinson, and my money secret is I pay tithes on my business in my church. I'm Jennifer Witter, and my money secret is to live beneath your means and to budget wisely. I'm Stacy Tisdale, and my money secret, don't worry about money. Your financial fortunes are going to change for all sorts of reasons. Life happens. Most important, remember that self-worth has got nothing to do with net worth. I'm Tiffany R. Warren, and my money secret is to invest in a good idea. It's an innovation economy. It's all about the creative economy, so invest in a great idea. Be sure to check out more episodes of Secrets of Wealthy Women on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast provider. This episode was produced by Tanya Bustos. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening. What's your secret? Let us know. Write podcasts at DowJones.com or on Twitter. Use hashtag Secrets of Wealthy Women.